We were made to praise. No one has ever taught us how to praise. It's in our DNA to praise. One could argue we were created to praise. And every day we exercise this God-given ability to praise. We praise our favorite sports teams. We praise our favorite singers. We praise even our own children. Praise ourselves. If you want to see true worship, look at a football game. In fact, last night, if you are aware, thousands of people packed into a stadium where the wind chill was minus 30. Friends, that is worship. Don't tell me you can't make it to church at 1045 on Sunday morning. If you can make it to a football game where it's minus 30, that's 60 degrees below freezing. That's cold, right? You see, we were made to praise. We praise every day. What the Apostle Paul does here at the beginning of Ephesians, as he sits behind his desk and thinks about God's glory through the local church, as he thinks about the church in Ephesus, those Christians gathered together every Lord's Day, worshiping and praying and singing and preaching, as he thinks about the moms with their little kids in the pews, as he thinks about the dads seeking to be an example to their children, as he thinks about the elderly and the widow, as he, as he reflects about their common unity in Christ, how he had saved these Gentile, rebellious people who he describes as outside the covenant of God, without God in the world. They were without hope. As he thinks of these once hopeless people, he does not burst out in praise of their faith. He doesn't burst out in praise at their doctrine. No, he burst out in praise for the God who has saved these people and united them together in a local church. In other words, the Apostle Paul, led by the Spirit of God, burst out in worship. No different than some of us this morning as we reflect on this great theological truth. Can't help but praise God for His work. This morning we are going to think particularly about praising God for choosing us in Christ. Now, lest you think this is going to be sort of a humble brag sermon about how awesome we are that God would choose us, I hope to dispel any such notions. Rather, we were the last to be picked on the dodgeball team, right? We were the ones that nobody would would have on the team. Those are the ones that God chose to save for His glory. Now, if you have your Bibles open, just want to note a couple things before we read the text this morning. Verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence 
in the original Greek text. If there was someone who mastered the run-on sentence, it was the Apostle Paul. There's more prepositions and participles in this particular sentence than one would ever care to do. And so, thankfully, our English Bibles have broken this down into bite-sized chunks. But to give you a sweeping overview of what we're going to consider over the next few weeks, the entire sentence is unified around the word praise. Praise to His glory. In other words, God does what God does for one reason and one reason only, and that is for His fame. He wants His name to be famous where it isn't famous. He wants His name to be known where it is unknown. And the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, writes this with precision. And he seeks to praise God for four main reasons. Number one, praise God for choosing us. That's what we're going to think about this morning. Next week, we're going to think about how God is to be praised for redeeming us. So verses 7 through 10. And then in verse 11, he picks up this idea of praising God for our inheritance that we've received. As children, as adopted sons and daughters, we have an inheritance But more than that, that inheritance, right, isn't locked away in a bank somewhere where robbers can get in and steal it, but rather our inheritance is fourthly secured by the Holy Spirit. And this fourth praise is to praise God for securing us in Christ. And so if you were a studious Student, who paid attention to what we read earlier, and we're going to look at it again in a moment through our statement of faith, each of these four aspects are taken up in that article on God's purpose of grace. So this morning, we're going to consider this morning our God, the the Father, Son, and Spirit, who is work in our salvation. And in verses 3 through 6, the lens focuses in on the Father's work through Christ. So we're going to think about God's work, and then next week, Christ's work, and then lastly, the Spirit's work. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Friend, this is a rich passage that we hope to do justice this morning. One could summarize it in this way, that every Christian should praise God for their election in Christ. Now, I know for some that word kind of scares you. Maybe even you knew this was coming and you kind of, um, you know, had some trauma uh, burst up in your soul. I don't know if we can think about this for a whole hour. I'm going to, you know, be concerned about it. Friend, I hope this morning 
you just sort of dispel and, and lay aside any anxiety that you might have and allow the scriptures to speak. Not allow men or the writings of men, but allow the Bible just to speak for itself. Hear Jesus write this and speak this into your heart this morning. That every Christian should praise God for their election in Christ. He has chosen us and therefore we ought to praise Him because we have been redeemed as His very special possession. This is a glorious truth I want us to think about this morning. Now, as we think about this, I think it's, it's helpful to back up and ask some big questions, right? So ask some big questions like, why does God save? Why does God save? Why did God choose, as Paul says here, before he created the first molecule, before he laid the, the foundation of the world, before the cosmos was thrown into the universe, why did God choose to save? See, if you answer that question, then everything else just sort of falls into place. Like dominoes, they just begin to fall over in your mind. If you rightly understand why God chose to save, then everything else becomes clear. And I believe what the Apostle Paul is arguing here in verses 3 through 14 is that God saved for His glory alone. That God saved, that God acted for His glory. In fact, the Bible says that God does everything He does for one singular purpose, and that is to the praise of His glory. That is why God does what He does. That's why He created this world. That's why He's chosen to save this world. That is why Christ came. That's why the Spirit redeemed us. All of these truths that we're going to think about is all for the praise of His glory. Thus, the object of our praise must be God and God alone. We praise Him because He's chosen to save us. And so this, this morning, I, my hope is that you leave here, right, not sort of filing your position in some particular doctrinal category, you know, but rather that your heart is warmed to know that God has been at work to save you even when you were really messed up. That God has chosen to adopt you into His family and that He promises that you'll be holy. And so this morning, if you're wrestling with your sin, if you're discouraged in your sanctification, we'll see it's the doctrine of election that gives us assurance, that gives us the sort of the gas in the tank to keep moving forward because God promised that He is going to make us holy, whether we like it or not. You see, election elicits the praise of God's people for they know that they are unworthy for such rich blessings. If you're in Christ this morning, you have something that you don't deserve to have. You possess something that if it was under your power, you would mess it up. But thanks be to God. He has given you an inheritance that is secure in Christ by His Spirit. And so this morning, in our time this morning, there's two main ideas I want us to think about. Number one, that is the basis of our election. 
I think it's important when we are talking about this particular subject that we do not get the wrong foundation. We must get the foundation right lest we build a house that will crumble. And the Apostle Paul in this text is at pains to make clear the basis of our election. Secondly, I want us to consider the reason for our election. The reason for our election. I think, I think Paul does a good job making clear the why. What motivates you and I to praise God. Number one, we see the basis of our election. Look again at the text. The Apostle Paul begins by praising God. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed It's an old English word you don't use. You could insert the word praise in there. That's what he means, praise. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Why? Well, you see, the foundation of our election is that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, God didn't bless his people with riches. God didn't bless his people with nice cars and big homes. Those things are fine things, but those are temporary things. Those those things don't last. God has blessed us as his people with a treasury that is eternal. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You, You came in the door this morning poor, but if you're in Christ, you leave rich. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, these are wonderful blessings. And and notice here, they're heavenly blessings. They're not earthly blessings. See, if they were earthly blessings, they would would end. They would would wear out. They They would die. Oh, but God has blessed us. He has given us gifts that are eternal. So everything we're thinking about this morning and in the weeks ahead are eternal blessings. The Apostle Paul here burst out in a eulogy to God, praising him for who he is and what he's done in Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have each worked to bring about our redemption in Christ. Notice here in our text this morning, I tried to emphasize it throughout, but let me just read it to you again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us In the beloved. And he continues on, and and we could look at each of them. Each of these in statements emphasize the overarching idea that our blessings come because we are in Christ. We're in the beloved. What Paul means is, is that we are in union with Christ. We are under the realm and rule of the sovereign Christ. When you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you are united to him so that every blessing that is Christ becomes your blessing. You see? 
You're not blessed because you are worthy of the blessing. You don't get uh, all these heavenly blessings because you did something to merit them. No, it is because you are united to Christ that you have these things. This is at the core of divine election. It is in Christ that we have been chosen. As we think about this and illustrate this, foundations are important to any structure. Whether it be the structure we're in today or the structure that you dwell in every night as you lay your head to sleep, if your house is not built on a firm foundation, then you know your house is going to crumble. Foundations are what God uses to build us on. They're the bedrock. And this morning, we want to understand that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the bedrock in which our salvation stands. The foundation of every whisper of our praise is our salvation in Christ. That is our foundation. All of it goes back to Christ. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing because we are united to Him. Here's how one author particularly put this. And I, and I think as we're thinking about this aspect of divine election, we need to understand That this primary truth, as John Stott puts it, the doctrine of election is a divine revelation and not a human speculation. Notice the words that he uses here. He has chosen us in Christ. He has chosen us in Christ. Verse 4. Or in verse 5, that he predestined us for adoption. These are biblical words. That means that God made a choice. He elected some to salvation that he might be glorified. Now, you might struggle with that, and that's okay. I think all of us at times have struggled with this particular doctrine. I don't think that it's wrong to wrestle with this. These things are mysterious things. These things are wonderful things. Immediately, perhaps you think, wow, that seems very arrogant. Almost prideful to even say that God would choose somebody over another as if that choice was, was elicited because of their worth or their value. Well, friend, one of the wonderful truths is the Bible speaks to this over and over. You can consider even in, in uh, 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. In other words... God chose a bunch of sissies to save in the eyes of the world. And you know, if you really think about it, isn't that true? If, if you and I were, were picking the team, what would we do? Well, we would pick the powerful. We would pick the kings and the queens, the, the presidents, the, the dignitaries. Why? Because they could get the word out. They could spread it faster, right? They, they, you know, we'd save some people on, on TV so they could you know, talk about the gospel. We'd save some athletes because you know, everybody wants to do what athletes do because they're so successful. That's what we would do, wouldn't it? And it's so funny. I almost laugh whenever that sort of is what's celebrated. You know, you have billboards. You know, uh, some Hollywood actor becomes a Christian and we put them up there. Like, that's supposed to, like, encourage me to become a Christian. Friend... That is the way of the world. You see, the way of God is he chooses what is despised in the world. He, he chooses what's not. So, so we must dispel any form of arrogance to think, oh, there was something special in us. You see, 
the doctrine of election is, is in the fabric of your whole Bible. I mean, think for a moment. Did Adam and Eve choose to be created? Did they have a choice in the matter? Did, did they get a, like, hey, I want to be created, make me? No, no more than you did. No more than you got to choose who your parents are or the year in which you were born or the town or state in which you grew up in. None of us had a choice in these things, but God and His goodness. In fact, if you just go and read page after page, story after story, throughout the book of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you don't know, just go through the whole thing, you'll understand very quickly that divine election is in the fabric of the Scriptures. Noah, he was a righteous man in the sight of God. People were wicked. But was it that Noah was perfect? That Noah was, was the man? Not at all. But, but according to God's sovereign purpose, he chose to save Noah and his family, though they were a lot of sinners just like you and I. Or consider Abram. He called him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. What does that mean? That means there was a whole lot of other people in Abram's family that could have been chosen, but he didn't. He chose Abram, and he chose to save no one but Abram and his family. You see, this is how God has worked. It is a mysterious thing, and we ought not to grow discouraged. Paul makes this point explicit when he writes that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? What's Paul's point? Well, it's not so much a timing question, you know, you know, in the year, a trillion years from ago. But the point is, is that there was nothing meritorious in us that would have deserved election. Here, the Apostle Paul dispels the theory that God had a foreknowledge that he looked down through the corridor of time, and there he saw the ones that would believe in him, and those are the elect. The Apostle Paul dispels that theology in stating that his electing choice was before the world was ever made, before you and I had done anything to deserve his work. He chose us. That we might be to the praise of his glory. More than that, if it is something that is grounded in eternity past, it is something that cannot be lost. That is why the perseverance of the saints, this uh, very well-held Southern Baptist doctrine that when God saves, he saves perfectly, that God saves those who endure to the end, and the perseverance of the saints is closely tied to his election of sinners to salvation. That is because it is grounded in eternity past, not in our present decisions. Lastly, we see here in this section that he chose us according to his will. Someone is sitting there in the pew thinking, well, why did God do it? Why did he pick me? Why, why did he choose me? Why didn't he choose her or him or or that or that. Why, why did he do this? Well, well, friend, I don't know. Other than he did it according to his will. Look at it again. Look at the text again. Verse 5. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You say, well, why did he predestine me? Why did he choose to save me? Why is it those many, many years ago I heard that gospel message and I walked that aisle and I repented and trusted in Christ? Is it because of you or because God was at work to save you? You see, it was according to his purpose. The standard and the basis of which he chose was his will. In other words, It is wrapped up in the eternal God. This is how one author put it. Divine election was not dreamed up by Martin Luther or John Calvin or St. Augustine. Or by the Apostle Paul, for that matter. It is not to be set aside as the imagination of some overactive religious minds, but rather humbly accepted as revelation, however mysterious it may be. We must never allow our subjective experience of choosing Christ to water down the fact that we would not have chosen him if he had not first chosen us. The doctrine of election presents us with a God who defies finite analysis. Here's worth the weight of gold. It is a doctrine that lets God be God. And friend, that's one of the wonderful truths of it. And though you maybe this morning be wrestling with it, that is the truth. This doctrine lets God be God. He is at work to do His will, not our own. This is what we affirm in our statement of faith, that election is God's gracious purpose. It's God's purpose, according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies And friend, don't think that for a moment that it's inconsistent, as our statement says, with the free will of man. We affirm that Adam and Eve had a will and it was free to sin and and it chose to sin. Just as you and I have a will that chooses to sin. Spend some time over in our nursery on Sunday mornings. There you will see it. No one taught those kids to steal to beat one another with toys, to cry and whine and complain. Sure, they might have learned it from dad at home, but no one teaches us this. No, it is by human nature we are hell-bent to rebel against God, and by His grace, He rescues us for His glory. So why did He save us then? If this is the basis, God's eternal purposes, which has been realized in Christ, let's get practical for a moment. Why does it matter? Why are we thinking about this this morning? Of course, I could have avoided this altogether, ran away like a scared little chicken, but we embrace it because it's in our Bibles, because I believe because of these three reasons. You see, there are three reasons in our text of why God did it, and I hope you will see them as all the glory that they are. God's doctrine of election leads to our sanctification. Do you see it? Look at it again. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that. That what? Well, what results? What, what results from God's election of sinners is that they become saints. That we should be holy and blameless before him. 
Both of these words have a moral quality to them, that we would be morally holy, not only set apart, but that we would be made pure, and look at the second one, blameless before him. And if you have any sense of your own sin and the shame of your sin, you're no different than Adam and Eve. We, we try to hide in our sin. We, we, you know, we hide in the bushes. We, we play cover. And even this morning, if you have a sense of some of the sin you've committed even today or yesterday, there's tremendous shame in that. We hate living in the light because when we live in the light, everybody can see how dirty we really are. Friend, God is at work through his electing purposes to make you blameless before him. He is taking your sin and casting it as far as the east is from the west. This is the glorious truth that we celebrate. We praise God that he has chosen to make us holy. And friend, so if you have stalled out in your sanctification, let me give you one example of that. What do we hear on the 14th day of January, and you've already, what, stopped your Bible reading plan. It's okay. We have confession around here. We, we, we have prayers of confession. You can confess. How many times have you stopped reading this week? Just in the two weeks. You've had two weeks, and you've already fallen short. Way to go. Oh, friend, the glorious truth is that God isn't going to leave you there. God isn't going to keep you there. If you're fighting sin right now, if there's something that seems to um, have you a prisoner, friend, by His grace, He is going to make you holy and blameless before Him. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Oh, it is a glorious truth. He has chosen us to be holy. But also, secondly, He's chosen us for adoption. Notice here, in love, and there's some debate whether in love goes with verse 4 or verse 5. It probably goes with verse 5. In love, he predestined us. Why? What does he say? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He has adopted us for himself. Friend, this is a glorious truth. He he chose, he he predetermined that he would would make you a son or a daughter. Perhaps this morning you come in here with a really messed up family. You don't really like talking about who your biological father is or biological mother. The home you grew up in wasn't one that you would celebrate. But one of the glorious truths is, that you're a part of something bigger than yourself. You're a part of a family where the eternal God of the universe is the Father. He is the one who provides, who protects. You're his child, friend. If you're in Christ this morning, you are a son or a daughter. Do you think that that is at loss on, on God when you pray? Do you pray with that kind of confidence that you are a child? Never think that God won't hear your prayer. You're His child. What child would He ever cast away? You're His. You're, you're His very special possession. 
You matter in the economy of God. Friends, this is why as shepherds, we never want to abandon one of God's sheep. We continually pursue them and run after them, even disciplining them if they are continuous in their rebellion because of the Father's love. If you want to think more about this, you can go back and take your bulletin home and read through how deep a Father's love for us. A rich hymn that points us to the Father's love of adopting sinners for His glory. J.I. Packer, I think, helpfully helps us grasp the fatherhood of God when he writes. He writes this, listen, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian and opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. This is a glorious truth. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is our prayer. Lastly, God has chosen us not merely for sanctification, not merely to be adopted, but again, as we began with, He has chosen us for praise. Wherever one lands on this particular doctrine, we must conclude that God has elected us, even though we don't quite understand how or why or or how it's all made together, we do know that we ought to praise God for His electing love. This is the point that Paul makes explicit in verse 6, that God has predestined us, verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. God has elected sinners to salvation for praise. You see, if you really think about it, if it was our choice, then we should get part of the praise. If we're the ones that have sort of made our ways, scraping and clawing to Jesus, then we get some of the cred. We get some of the credibility. We get some of the praise. We get some of the worship. After all, we did it. But as we sang earlier, while I was on my hellbound race, He led me to the cross. Isn't that how it happened, friend? If you really think about it, you didn't turn up in that sermon or meet that friend who was sharing the gospel with you. Right, you, Your story is similar to the Apostle Paul's. You were going about your merry business, hating God and hating everything else in the world, but God met you on your road to Damascus. He interrupted you so that he might get the praise. Paul is here using the doctrine of predestination not to separate believers, not to instill pride in our being chosen, nor to vaunt any special knowledge of God's work, like we have this secret knowledge that nobody else knows. Rather, hard-pressed believers who know and trust that God has loved them and that this love is not merited in and of themselves. In other words, if you rightly understand this text, that in love He predestined us, 
God has secured us, not in us, but in Christ. Friend, this is what we sing often, and he will hold me fast. This is divine election. In other words, predestination is meant to bless the believer's heart. It's not meant for endless argument. It's not meant to be an excuse not to evangelize. Rather, it is the fuel that propels evangelism. God is at work to save sinners. If if you woke up every day knowing that there is a divine appointment that you're going to make, that it is not random chance that you stand there and have that conversation with the little girl at the checkout. It's not random chance that you keep bumping into your coworker at the water cooler. It is not random chance that you are neighbors to the people you're neighbors to. That God is at work to draw men and women to himself. And by the way, when we think of election, I know where your mind awfully goes. We go narrow, like, oh, God just has this little group. Maybe expand it a little bit. That God is at, about electing a lot of people unto salvation for his glory. Predestination is the heavenly Father's shout of eternal love that echoes in our songs of thankful praise as our strength is renewed by the assurance of his care. In love, in love, he chose you. Perhaps one of the greatest passages that Luke records for us in the book of Acts that help clarify this discussion, comes to us in Acts chapter 12. We're told of a story of King Herod. King Herod, the son of the one who killed, helped kill Jesus. He was a leader of the Jewish people. He was to be an example to them. And one day, he was out to gather support. He was on the campaign trail trying to gather some support for a project that he had going on. And the people began to praise him. They began to shout out the voice of God and not man. And Herod was like, I kind of like that. That feels good. We all love the praise of men. We all live for the praise of men. Even this morning, you probably loved it when someone praised the way you looked, the way you smelt, something about you. So did Herod. He loved the praise of men. The voice of God and not man. Luke tells us what happened to Herod. As he began to well up and feel all warm and fuzzy inside, he began to feel real warm and fuzzy inside. And we're told that that very moment, God killed him. Why? Because God does not share praise with men. He doesn't praise. He does not share his fame. And when we think of the doctrine of election, we must understand our aim, again, is not to be proud, but to be humbled at the foot of the cross. That God would choose to save sinners for his own glory. We must not be lost in the doctrine of election but see it for all the glorious purpose that God has in it. That He has chosen us for holiness. That He has elected us for adoption as sons and daughters. And that He has done all of it for the praise of His glorious grace in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before You just in all of Your glory. What more could be said 
than what you've already said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Make us holy. Make us a people who are blameless in your sight. In your infinite love, while we were yet sinners, you predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters. Let us embrace that. Let us leave here in all humility, but with our heads held high, knowing that we are a son of the God Most High. You, you did all of this to the praise of your glorious grace with which you've blessed us in the beloved. You, you've done this for your glory and for our eternal good, for the praise of your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Friends, as we respond to God's word this morning, we want to do so through song. So let's stand and sing our final hymn together.